Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So good morning, lovers of product. I'm here today with Rafa Cohen, the Chief Product Officer of Waze, which is an exciting product. I know I'm a big Waze fan. It's my go-to app because of things like traffic and alerts. And, you know, I maybe drive every once in a while a little too fast, so it's good to have those kind of alerts too. So, you know, Rafa, tell me about your background, and then we're going to have to, of course, get into your story at Waze. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for using Waze. So I'm an, actually an electrical engineer. Not much to do with uh, product management, certainly not of uh, internet and, and software products and, and B2C. But uh, I started my uh, career as an algorithm engineer, then moved to product, uh, which at the time was much like, like a CTO role, not really a product, but it was called VP product management, although I had no idea what it meant and what is product management. And from there, I uh, kept going deeper and deeper into uh, product management and started doing other things software first embedded and then consumer software and then uh, mobile apps when I joined Google and, and then Waze. So talk to me about learning about product management as a craft. That, that's very interesting. So uh, as you know, there is no degree in product management. So uh, you, you have, uh, everyone has to figure out by themselves and it's a tricky journey. Uh, usually it starts with, a. I always think at, as the product management uh, skill set as a triangle, you have business skills, you have design skills, and you have tech skills, and you have to have at least one expertise when you begin the journey, and then you have to figure out how to develop yourself and, and your skills in the two other dimensions. I came from tech, I'm an engineer, and uh, as you go and you learn about uh, a new product and new businesses and new users, you have to develop and learn and grow uh, on the two other dimensions. For me, it was business first when I was, uh, because I started as a, uh, my product journey in the uh, hardware uh, industry. Uh, and then when I started uh, doing uh, software and B2C, uh, I started learning about uh, design and, and started learning about UX and UX research, UX design, UX content, all those things only five or six years ago. I had no idea what those meant before. So talk to me about that, business design tech, right? So you, you came from a strong tech background. You know, what are the important skills on the business side you think good product leaders need to learn? Yeah, I think it's becoming uh, increasingly clear to everyone, maybe not, uh, it was not as clear, I guess, 10 years ago, that you cannot build great products that are not scalable. And by scalable, I don't only mean on the tech side that you can serve uh, hundreds of millions of users if by mistake you're being successful, but also sustainable on the business side. So you have to think from day one on the unit economics, about the unit, uh, on the unit economics, about the lifetime value of your users, the cost of acquisition, all those things you have to really think about them from day one. It's, of course, far from being enough. Of course, we'll talk, I guess, about user needs and uh, UX research, about the tech that supports them, but like... Thinking in those terms from day one is super important because if you don't, if you can't demonstrate that people want your product in the sense that they're ready to pay for it, then you're not learning the right lessons, right? And that's very critical to understand. If you give away your products for free or not at the right price range, you'll end up learning lessons that are not really relevant for after you scale when you can't 
keep pouring money on your uh, on your users so they use your products. So that's that's very very important. So you know you talked about business design tech, right? And you answered the question about what you learned out of the business side. What do you think is the hardest for people coming in to learn? You came with having a background in tech and learned some of the other areas. What do you think is the hardest for people to learn? Yeah, I don't think there is one uh, single answer that applies to everyone. I think it uh, depends on uh, people's abilities. I think it also depends on people's interests. And uh, to me, I know that design was the hardest because I, I started relatively late and also because I had very little background on, on this dimension. But uh, on the other hand, it was so interesting. So it was very uh, easy to get into it. So I think like Typically, all uh, every PM is uh, interested in the three dimensions. Um, I've met very few PMs that are not interested in tech, not interested in business, or not interested in, in design. I would say that it's very difficult to have the discipline to think about the business side from day one. That's, from my experience, the most uh, challenging part, because there is a culture, especially in Silicon Valley, that think about user first, and it's like almost taboo to talk about other things. And if you talk about anything else that user needs, then you're not, uh, in a sense, doing your job. And that's something that people are in increasingly uh, aware of. It makes no sense to talk about user needs if you can't talk about the business and about whether you, you can build a sustainable business and sustainable product to serve the user that you're uh, looking at. So I think that's the most challenging part from my experience, not because people don't have the abilities or because it's the most difficult part, but because it's not part of the culture often. And tell me, how do soft skills fit in, right? How do those skills that, you know, or attributes too of, well, attributes of, in form of like things like empathy, curiosity, how important is that for product leaders? And then soft skills like communication, right? I mean, you heard a lot of analogies used for product managers, some of which are, you know, people poo-poo a lot these days, like the CEO of the product, but the then you know, the like your traffic controller and all those kind of things. How do soft skills fit into your triangle? Yeah, so that's, I think, the uh, we've heard about the CEO of the product. I don't think it describes the full extent of the uh, responsibilities of the product manager. But I think, like, I know it's, it sounds like a cliche, but really the part of uh, having impact without authority is the most uh, tricky part, and it requires a lot of uh, soft skills. It's very challenging, and I think it's very important for PMs not to have the authority on the engineers or on the business side to make things happen because it forces thinking. It forces them to be very data-driven and to have the right tools and the right data to convince people and to enlist them to do the right thing or what the, the, the product manager thinks is the right thing. So it's a cliche, but it's very, very true, and I think it's by design. I think like a PM who has the authority to make things happen often will end up not doing the right thing. Now, it's it's interesting. I have an engineering degree too, uh, electrical and computer from Carnegie Mellon. Got into product, got into the marketing side of the house. One of the things I've seen is that you know, people that have a strong technical background sometimes struggle to have developed the soft skills. Do you see that too, where there's a challenge with uh, technically based uh, product managers that come from that area of the triangle, developing the soft skills they need to be a good product leader? And if so, what, what advice do you give them? I don't think so. I don't think it's specific to people with a tech background. Of course, I have as a, I have a tech background, maybe I'm not just aware of it. But I, I don't think I think it's a stereotype that's not really true. You have uh, developing empathy is uh, you, you can find empathetic people uh, everywhere and from with people from uh, all backgrounds. And that, from my experience, just awareness is enough for people to uh, understand that they need to work on this and to start looking at the different stakeholders and and respect their point of view. 
Uh, it can be challenging not only for people with a technical background. It comes from everywhere. People have a tendency of underestimating uh, the difficulty and the complexity of tasks that they're not, they don't understand. So if you're an engineer, you will tend to think that the business side is, uh, is easier. If you're a business side, you'll think that design is easy. If you're a designer, you'll think that the uh, actual coding is easy. If you're a coder, you'll think, or a programmer, you'll think that QA is easy. And that's a tendency that all humans have. And, and I, don't, I don't think it depends, uh, and it's really correlated to the, the fact that there's a tech background. But that's something that we all need to work on, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I, I didn't mean to imply that engineers can't be good verbal communicators or can't be empathetic. Uh, I, I feel like <laughs> I'm an, I hope I'm an example of, of that being true, that, uh, that we can be. So uh, talk to me a little bit about Waze. What's the big challenges uh, these days at Waze? And what were the big challenges as Waze grew? Can you kind of step me through some of that process? Yeah, very small challenge. We just uh, want to eliminate traffic. That's all. Globally. And fast. So that's the uh, challenge. That's our mission. And uh, we won't stop until we've achieved it. The challenge is that we think we can be successful in that mission because we have the right brands, the right sentiments, the right community, and the right user base in order to achieve that. The challenge is that our users now get a tremendous value from our historical and actual product, the navigation parts, the navigation app. And it's very difficult to balance this app that works at scale, that people love, that is ubiquitous in the whole world and that's, uh, you know, powered by those huge communities. And on the other hand, this startup that we have within Waze that is called Carpool, and that is, uh, which goal is to uh, match drivers who drive in the same direction in order to take cars off the road and eliminate traffic. And having those two products and those two use cases living in the same product in the same app is a tremendous challenge. So we need to be careful because we want to see Carpool as a feature of Waze. Like it's the, it's not, it's just an evolution. It's the logical next step for us in our fight against traffic because we quickly realized that you can't outsmart traffic anymore, right? This was our step one mission. Outsmart traffic altogether. It cannot be done anymore because there's traffic everywhere and traffic is now ubiquitous. It's, and there is nowhere to hide. So the next logical step is to match people together and take cars off the road. So we want to look at this as an evolution, but we're not sure that our users see it that way. They just want like the core value of ways to evolve and to keep developing. Of course, we want that too. So we have to find the right balance between those two things. Keep the product relevant, keeping up to date, keep improving it dramatically. And on the other hand, keep developing their mindsets in, in a sense that we want them to think about how they drive and how they move in general in different ways. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting. You know, I, I feel like if maybe if I talked to one of your users and said, what's the mission of Waze? They would be like, oh, it, it's about getting me from here to there faster, right? But the mm -hmm. mission of Waze is about eliminating traffic. So that leads me to asking you about like, what do you see as the future of transportation? You know, you talked about step one with Waze is outsmarting traffic. Step two is this push to take cars off the road because you can't, you know, fully outsmart traffic. You know, talk to me about mm -hmm. the future of transportation and what you guys see it looking like. Yeah. So the future of transportation, often when people think about and talk about this future, they tend to have, especially in that industry of transportation, that's very interesting, they tend to have a very tech-centered approach of thinking about technology first, thinking about autonomous cars and electric cars and, and uh, connected cars, all those things which are obviously extremely important and they are part of the future. 
but they don't think necessarily, I don't know why, I'm not sure why, in, specifically in the mobility industry, they don't think about user needs. And the urgent needs now, and of course, uh, climate change is the challenge of our era and, and electric car play a, a central role and safety is super important. That's why we want to have autonomous car. But the urgency now is that people suffer in traffic hours every day. And they suffer, their health suffer, their mood suffers, their marriage suffers, the healthcare system suffers. Everything suffers from the fact that we just have too many cars on the roads and not enough roads in general. And we can't keep up with this strategy of adding more and more and more roads. It ruins our cities and our communities. And we need to make this paradigm shift and, and change our approach. We need to take cars off the road, take cars out of our cities and our communities. And I think about the future of transportation in very simple terms. Dense cities without cars, with bikes, with people who can walk in a safe way and go from hub to hub, by different means, maybe it's public transit, maybe it's carpool, maybe it's other things, it doesn't matter. The need is for our cities, uh, for people to live in livable cities uh, where they can feel safe and we can have you know, children uh, playing outside without feeling threatened by uh, metal beasts that are cars. So this is how I think about mobility, just people living more densely, more uh, closer one to another, leveraging, uh, you know, working from home and, and, you know, video conferencing, et cetera, et cetera. But we want them to move. We want them to be able to move and to meet in person. That ways we truly believe that the moving part is an important part of the equation. So we have to find a mobility solution. And if they want to move from one hub to another, we do believe that with the existing infrastructure and with the existing tech, basically cars, we have to make the mobility shared. That's the key. Shared is more urgent than electric, is more urgent than autonomous, and it's more an urgent than connected. All those things are tremendously important, but the urgency is on the shared part, I believe. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I share a similar passion. I absolutely hate traffic. I, you know, by extension, I think I hate lines too. I, I used to do everything to avoid. I lived in Silicon Valley, uh, lived in San Francisco for a period of time, and worked down in the valley. So I would get up as early as I needed to, to avoid traffic. And, you know, at a certain point, you just can't do that anymore. <laughs> you, it's a nightmare. It, it just stops working. Uh, so, you know, it, it's interesting that Waze has changed from looking at, you know, or it, the evolution of Waze and how it's going to change, right? So in a world without cars or a world with a lot less cars, what does Waze look like? Oh, we are about to offer mobility solutions, right? So right now we are focused on driving, very much focused on driving because this is where our users are and this is where their most urgent needs are. Of course, like bikers have needs, but I don't think this is like an emergency now to, to solve those needs. And people right now drive cars, they drive them alone. This is where the needs are and this is where we want to be part of the solution. But in the future, there is nothing about Waze strategy that uh, you know, uh, says that we will always be about driving. I'm not too concerned about Waze. I'm more concerned about society and about the, uh, our, our cities that are um, you know, fun to live in and the safety of our children. And I'm about the, the future of Waze. I'm sure that we'll figure it out. If we're part of solving the problem, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll find a, a solution about what to do next. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's great. And one of the things you touched on is human-centered experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about creating human-centered experiences and, and the challenges of doing it, the, the mindset you need to have. Yeah, it's interesting that you're asking about human-centered experience. I think people talk a lot about uh, user-centered experience, and I see those things are uh, dramatically different. And if we were 
a bit uh, crisper on the difference between those two, I think we will live in a better society. I think user-centered is about user needs. And it's great, of course, to look at the user needs rather than at only at the business needs, but that's only the first step. You don't want only to solve a problem for the user. You really want to solve a problem for society at large, right? And you want, at, at the very least, to make sure you're not harmful to society, right? And often those things are not necessarily compatible, and you can do things that solve people urgent issues like uh, lust or boredom, but on the way of uh, achieving this goal, you can be very harmful to society. So human-centered design is really about thinking user needs in a broader perspective of uh, what your product does to society. And I, I think that should be the filter for decision-making for any uh, good product organization. Now, do you think all the good pro- – well, let me say – let me remove the word good. Do you think all of the software organizations, all the product organizations, all the tech organizations out there – think that way? Oh, no, no, not at all. I think that uh, it's not about good, as you said. I, I think like, I, I don't think in those terms of, you know, good people, bad people, good companies, bad companies, I don't think that's useful. But I think it's useful to think and to talk about the useful frameworks for developing products. And just the mere fact of talking about human-centered product rather than user-centered product and what's the difference mean, I think, forces thinking, forces everyone to think about those problems and, and to be more mindful of them. I don't think in those terms of, of good companies or, or bad companies. Often you have people, it's the same people moving from company A to company B. And, you know, just the mere fact that the culture is different in one company and in another, or, you know, the processes are, are different, people tend to change the way they look at, uh, at their business or their product. And it's useful to, you know, just the discussion, the mere discussion of uh, human-centered uh, design is, is important to have, in my opinion. So talk to me about the audience for the Waze app. Got to be really diverse. You have to get a, a, a lot of different feedback, different approaches to you know, different thoughts on how to change Waze or where Waze should go. So first, let's start with like, how do you build for those different diverse experiences? And then second, how do you manage all of that feedback? And let's start with building. Yeah, this is by design at Waze. I, this is something that is very profound in our culture. And uh, I, I love to tell that story, but uh, when um, Google Maps tried to understand why is uh, Waze so popular in LATAM, they went to Brazil and they started interviewing users. And the users often have the same answer, which is, well, we use Waze because it's a Brazilian app. So, you know, that's why we use it. Of course, it's not really a Brazilian app, but in fact, it is in some sense, because the community really builds the map, the data layer, they contribute to the product. And we see our role as a product team to empower communities to build the product. We don't build the product. We build a structure for the community to build the product. And this is the only way we know to build truly hyper-local products at scale. Those things could be uh, contradictory, but we do our best and we think from day one at how to build the right structure for different communities to build the right uh, hyperlocal features or experiences that are relevant to them in their specific locations. So the um, driving regulations are very different in Brazil and, and in France or in Indonesia, for instance. So we have to think about like what is common between those restrictions, what can we build in the product team and what should we leave the community build in the map editor or in the various user-generated contribution that they can do to our map in order to finish, complete the products. So talk to me about the feedback side. Similarly, you must get a ton of feedback, different feedback from different communities. You know, how, how yeah. do you deal with that? How do you, how do you categorize that, organize that and respond to it? Yeah, our community is, is super engaged, is passionate and is not representative of our user base. 
We are aware of that. The community is aware of that. It's still tremendously helpful. And we would be nothing without our community because they here to surface the insights, the hyperlocal insights and the hyperlocal needs from their area. But when we build something and we want to get feedback, often we don't rely only on our community. We need feedback from less engaged users because our users will always use Waze and will always find very creative ways to use our product to achieve their goals. But of course, for 99% of our user base, it's not always the case. So we have to rely on different feedback channels. And this is where uh, UX research comes into play. And this is uh, where uh, support comes into play, et cetera, et cetera. All those feedback channels are critically important at different stage of the design of the product. That's great. That's great. And then, then you have to integrate that also with the feedback you get internally, right? Product direction, design, sales. Talk to me a little bit about the challenges of balancing that. I think that's one of the big challenges product managers have, product leaders have, is balancing push and pull from very different constituents, very different directions, both externally, like you talked about, but also internally. Yeah, that's a very tricky question because I think there is no right answer that fits everyone. And even within ways, for instance, we have different um, product teams with I think should have different processes and different design mindsets. I'll give you an example. Our ads teams, which builds like the ads experience, but also like the support side and how to reach out to advertisers, they need a long-term roadmap because they need to talk to customers with budgets and they need to plan long-term. So they need a roadmap. This is very important. But for B2C, I think that roadmaps are outdated, right? This is not the right way to build product, right? We have to be very careful to build the MVPs that are, you know, that's actually validate very basic and simple hypothesis, put them in front of users, being very uh, careful not to be uh, harmful on the way of doing that, getting feedback, iterating fast. We, we never commit on anything, right? We just commit on the outcome, but never on the output. But on the B2B side, on the ad side, you have to commit on the output, not only on the outcome, because different people have to plan accordingly. So I think it really depends on what your business is, what your product is, who your stakeholders are. And there is no one formula for any product team to incorporate feedback from different stakeholders. What is tremendously helpful is whatever you do is to having all the stakeholders as early as possible in the process. And if possible, not right away in the same room. I have like a a method of the uh, concentric circles, I call it, where you get an idea, you first run it by one person, maybe it can be in engineering, you get feedback, you iterate on your own idea, and then you loop in another person, et cetera, et cetera. And you enlarge the circle slowly but surely, First of all, your idea gets better in time. So every time you pitch it, it becomes refined and better. And also, it's after two or three iterations, it's not your idea anymore. It's everyone's idea. And it's much easier to get buy-in. So that's the method I use. But the, the way of doing that, who are you looping in when, depends on the product, depends on the team, depends on uh, politics in your organization, uh, unfortunately, and on many other things. Interesting. Um, does this tie into like, we talked a little bit about and read a little bit about, you know, the idea of thinking like a product manager. Is, is this part of what you think means to think like a product manager? Yeah. Thinking about a product manager to me is having a strong yet adaptive worldview of how the universe looks like and how it interacts with your product and adapt it every time you get a, a new piece of data. So you start from a worldview, you have an hypothesis on how your product is going to impact the universe. Uh, And every time 
there is an interaction between your product and the universe, so the users or society, you see what happens and you adapt either your worldview or your product. That's what thinking about a product manager is. You can't be data-driven. You can't let only the data drive you. You need to have a strong hypothesis about how your users and society behaves. So this is why it's uh, very important to have a broad uh, base of many uh, areas and not, not only in tech and not only even in product management, but much broader than that. Yeah, and in, in your, your concentric circle uh, pitching system, so to speak, is a good example of that, right? As you're incorporating mm-hmm. feedback from you know, each individual and then that circle quickly or slowly, one of the two gets larger. Yes. Talk to me about how experimentation fits in into that idea of thinking like a product manager. So I think I, I don't need to emphasize uh, how important experimentation is to product manager and to data scientists and to tech organizations in general. I think what's worth emphasizing is that most likely you don't need an experiment. That's, I think, uh, people experiment too much. They do too much A-B testing. They do too much, uh, well, let's just try both and, and let's see what happens. And it's often unnecessary, either because the outcome of the experiment won't really impact your decision making or because you just have such a strong opinion that it won't impact what you do anyways, right? So often people just, you know, they know what they're going to do and they'll still run an A-B test because they want to appear data-driven, but only if the outcome of the experiment suits their beliefs, their prior beliefs. So I think that the automatic reflex to do an experiment on anything we build, I think is harmful because you know, you can't run as many experiments as you want, right? Especially if your user base is small, you want to achieve significant uh, statistical significance fast. So you need to be very crisp and very sharp on what are the decisions that are, you're trying to make and focus on those, not automatically build any feature as an experiment. It works for Facebook. It works probably for Uber. It also works for Waze on the core side. But if you have a small product with a small user base, you need to be very careful and disciplined about what your hypotheses are, what your worldview is, and what is the decision that you're actually trying to make because every experiment is extremely expensive. Yeah, I think that's an important thing for people to to remember that there's a, a cost associated with experiments. And I think in a lot of cases, people don't take that into account when they're talking about a culture of experimentation and, and what that should mean. Absolutely. I often tell people, you probably don't need an experiment. You probably know what you need to do. You probably know what you are going to do. So just do it, right? Don't pretend that you're going to be data-driven if you don't really intend to be. And of course, and also you can't prioritize all of your decision based on data. It's not possible. Like be very clear on what are the hard questions and focus on those. Otherwise, the time of learning will be multiplied by orders of magnitude and you'll never converge, right? So start from the hard question, do an A-B test 50-50 on your small user base and take it from there. But at every point on time, you need to have a very limited set of questions that you're trying to answer. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, because people sometimes gravitate to doing the, the easy experiments and not necessarily the experiments that the results are going to be most meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. And by meaningful, we mean driving decision making. That's the key point. Absolutely. If you, don't, if you don't intend to make a decision with your data, don't bother. So talk to me a little bit about COVID now. How has that affected your product team, product roadmap, ways in general? Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's very difficult to collaborate uh, from remote. We've onboarded many people now that we've basically never met in person. I don't think it's great for culture. I don't think it's great for productivity. We still manage to get a lot done because you know things. There are things that are better to do from home, right? If you want to 
write a document or even to write code. It's better to do like there is just no need to come to office for doing those things. But if you want like to do a design sprint or to collaborate on ideas and to iterate fast and to uh, just you know a brainstorm, it's very very difficult to do this online. So. I believe that the future of work is not a pure working from home. Uh, it's not also, I think it's, it, it's great that we learn that some things can be done from home. You don't really need to be in office five days a week, probably not, but you, you also can't be five days a week home month after month after month. You just have to, you know, get to know people for real. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely, I think, easier getting to know people when you can, uh, you know, be there in a shared physical location. You know, you talk about collaboration being a struggle. Is are, are there ways you've tried to solve that problem, that remote collaboration, things like, you know, how do you do design sprints remote? Are, are there tools you've used or things you've got or things you'd like to see? You know, truthfully, that we're struggling. It's very difficult. I don't think the, uh, the tech was ready for a real uh, effective and productive collaboration. So we are using, you know, we, we don't have a, a secret trick that nobody knows about. We use the same tool as everyone. We use the Google's Zoom equivalent, uh, Meet. We have uh, Jamboards. We have things like, we do our best. Docs, of course, is tremendously helpful, but it's not it's not the same. So uh, I'm afraid I can't, uh, you know, recommend something that, uh, you know, nobody knows about and we figure it out. We, we haven't, and, and we're struggling. Yeah, you mentioned Google Meet. If there's a Google Meet product manager out there listening, I would really like it if the hang-up button and the mute button weren't right next to each other. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying I've done that. Well, maybe once or twice. But uh, if you would please move them a little farther apart, maybe put another icon in between. I don't know. Um, That's a surprisingly good point. <laughs> Especially for those of us who might not use it every day, you know. Yes, I think that's the point. When you're using to it, it never happened to me, for instance. But I, I struggle with Zoom, right? I use it like uh, once every two months. So yeah, it's it's very difficult to use your muscles and your reflexes from one product to another. That's a very good point. Yeah, I, I, I'm you know product person at heart. I always want to give people feedback. It's funny when you use different applications. It's like, please take my feedback because then my life would be better. So talk to me about the product community going into next year. You know, how you think it's going to change, any new tools you might be adding to your stack, what you see as kind of the big trends for, for product management. Yeah, it's difficult to predict that. I think it will depend on um, uh, where the industry is going in terms of working from home. I think that's the one big change. If the industry is going to work from home, I think it will be product managers will have to adapt because a lot of the work of the product managers happen in corridors when you meet the engineer and you're having those impromptu discussions with them. I think it's a, it's a very important uh, part of the story. And, and uh, you know, the influence skills that you'll have to build if you're working from home are probably going to be uh, different and we'll have to train people to do them. But um, I'm not convinced right now that, that this is going to be the, uh, the outcome of this pandemic. I think soon enough we'll return to some kind of normal with the right adaptations. Yeah, it seems like we've bounced back and forth between the normals and, and the, the non-normals. And, and hopefully that those bounces to the unnormal become less and less often. So. Yes. So, um, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about Rafa as we get to these last few questions, right? So what's your favorite product? Oh, that's a very good question. So last time I was asked this question, it was five years ago at my, when I interviewed for Google. And I don't think my answer has changed since then. I, I love the uh, Mobileye on my car. I think it's a great product. It's basically sensors that uh, it's, it's built for safety, but I think it's a great product because it's extremely simple, intuitive, and it teaches you how to drive and makes you a better driver, right? So I, I think this is why I love this product. 
It's not fancy. It doesn't have many buttons. It doesn't have any button actually. But just with uh, you know the two or three actions that it's uh, able to make, it just makes you a, a safer driver. So I think like the simplicity on the one hand and the uh, outcome that it achieves on the other hand is something uh, I think is really uh, well done and interesting. That's awesome. You know, I, I think it's always interesting hearing what products people come up with. Um, you know, I, I have heard Waze as people's favorite products. I'm sure that that makes you happy. You know, there are a lot of fans of, of Waze out there. It, it's interesting, too, to think about, like, you know, Waze, Waze coming about in a space that already had Google Maps and had Apple Maps moving into the space. It's interesting to think that you can still revolutionize an industry that maybe had a large incumbent player that seemed like they had a had kind of solidified that position. And what do you point to as Waze's success? Like, how did that come about? Was it because they thought about things differently from a different mindset? Yeah, I think so. I I think it's uh, different factors. And I can talk freely about those because I was not part of this success. I came relatively uh, late to to Waze. So I think it's a combination of a few things. The design-centric approach and the the very um, unique design that makes ways feel and look different is very apparent and uh, when i joined ways i first asked our ceo whether uh, we were considering to move to material design which is like the uh, design that defines google it's very uh, useful right because you have all the design patterns and and design system already figured out so why not it's very it, it makes uh, development easier but like the look and feel of ways is what makes its identity so strong and uh, it's part of the success, the brands and the design-centric approach. And of course, the hyper-local look and feel. The fact that the community builds the features for us, I think it's very unique to ways and makes people all around the world feel like the app is local. It's been developed by locals and it's made useful for them. Interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely see that community feel and that feeling of being local as big differentiators, along with just the the focus on you know what ends up being your your mission, which is traffic, right? That always got me involved because I I like uh, I guess most Wazers are am a hater of traffic. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, most people actually, but uh, yeah, I I viscerally hate traffic. That's for yeah, sure. I am, yeah, I'm I'm the same way. Like I said, when I commuted yeah. to San Francisco, I would I'm not a morning person. I would get up two hours earlier than normal <laughs> just to make sure I could avoid traffic in the morning. Well, well, thanks. This has been awesome. I, I have one final question for you today. Uh, three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. Coffee, water, and wine. Nice, nice. I like those answers. Well, this has been great. I've greatly enjoyed this. Uh, hope you did too. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed it very much and uh, talk to you later.